good news, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are um, we're thankful that you hold us fast, the Holy One, the one that is all together, different and separate from us, came and dwelt among us and holds us fast now through all of our days. Lord, it's our desire tonight that Christ would be lifted high as we see in the text, as we see Jesus <clears throat> speaking and teaching Nicodemus regarding spiritual truths that he is clueless to. I pray, Lord, that we would see and perceive what it is that he's saying and that we would see him exalted, lifted up, and that we would seek to continue to exalt who we want to do and to see Christ exalted and lives transformed. We believe that we are transformed as Christ is magnified and exalted, which means tonight is an opportunity for transformation as we look to the exalted Christ. So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Help us to, to hear, to understand what you have for us in your word tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been a while <clears throat> since we have gotten back into the book of John. We were off from the book of John all last month, and I appreciate Dan and Wayne and Craig filling in on Wednesday night. Um, it's a huge blessing to know that we have able-bodied and willing men to step in and, and fill in in that way. And as we get back into John 3 tonight, we'll be in verses 9 through 15, and we're going to be talking about how the sun must be lifted high. We get back into John, we'll resume where we left off in chapter 3. We had been in, I'd kind of done an overview of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, and then we looked specifically at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and the necessity of the work of the Spirit to take place in someone's life in order for them to enter into the kingdom of God. The work of the Spirit, being born again, it's not just like an option to get into the kingdom of God, but it's an absolute necessity to get into the kingdom of God, which makes the word of God and prayer really the, some of the best tools, the, the best tools that the believer has at our disposal. Because the Spirit uses the word of God and God uses prayers of his people to accomplish his divine will. And so we saw how the Spirit is necessary looked on how the work of the Spirit um, is necessary in order for people to enter into the kingdom of God. Tonight we're going to look at the work of the Son, being able to be looking to the Son, Him lifted high is necessary. And then lastly, when we get into verses 16 through 21, um, Lord willing, next Wednesday we'll see the work of the Father as well. And so one of the things that we see in John 3, 1 through 21, is the triune God at work. In our salvation. And this is really kind of the pattern for how salvation works in anybody's life who's going to be saved, right? The work of the Spirit enables us then to see the work of the Son, and all of that is done because of the work of the Father, that He, that the tri, as God, as the triune God, is working together to accomplish our redemption and our salvation. So as we look specifically at the work of the Son tonight, we'll be in John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. And I'm going to read it, and you can read along with me. And then I just want to draw our attention to two points in particular tonight. 
that I, I pray are going to be helpful for us. John chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 9 and read through verse 15. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus is continuing the conversation that he's having with Nicodemus. And just again, to draw our attention, I want us to notice three verses in particular. Chapter 3, verse 1, verse 2, and then again, verse 10 tonight. Right? Chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's one of the rulers of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night, and he makes this confession. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he comes, the ruler, one of the Pharisees, the rulers, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus in the cover of night and makes this confession. And Jesus then, in verse 10, reminds us again of who Nicodemus is. Are you the teacher of Israel? We need to understand, and I think what's important to grasp from this whole narrative is who Nicodemus is, how learned, how educated, how trained he is in the Scripture, and he doesn't have a clue what the Scriptures are really about. There are many people that walk around, and they know a lot of what the Bible says. And yet they completely miss what the Bible is really all about. There's people, there are, there are linguists out there that know biblical Hebrew and Greek better than me, better than most pastors on the face of this planet, and yet they're not saved. Why? Because it's not about knowing the language. It's not about knowing the stories. It's about being able to spiritually discern and perceive what the Bible is really about and who the Savior is. Nicodemus is having this conversation, a face-to-face -face interaction with Jesus. Jesus is going to use a passage that Nicodemus is well familiar with to show him, you think you know this story? You don't know the story at all. Because it's a story that points to him as the entire scripture points to him. He is the teacher of Israel. He's not just a Pharisee. He's not just one of the rulers. Nicodemus is, he's like the man. Jesus identifies him as the teacher of Israel. And this, this, this well-educated, sophisticated, learned man didn't have a clue as to what the Bible was really all about. And I think that that's an important um, lesson for us to consider as well just before we get into the passage tonight. Nicodemus is a perfect example of the fact that it's not always about what you know. It's not about stuff. Of course, knowing the truth and knowing biblical truth is important. 
but it's about being able to spiritually discern the truth and being able to truly know who God is. Nicodemus's inability to discern spiritual realities is his main problem because of his sinful condition. Jesus, as the divine man, came to accomplish a spiritual work and the necessity of looking to him, Jesus, to be a recipient of that spiritual work is what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and teaching us tonight. And we notice this and we see this in two ways. Jesus illuminates the darkness in Nicodemus and Jesus illuminates the darkness in death as well. In verses 9 through 13, we see how Jesus illuminates the darkness in Nicodemus. Nicodemus asks him the question, how can these things be? How can it be true? The things that you're talking to me about, how can the necessity to be born again, the idea of the spirit and the flesh, the idea of uh, being able to enter into the kingdom of God. How are all of these things that you're talking about that he spoke of in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, the necessity of receiving the spirit of God and the spirit of God coming and going as he pleases and he gives life to whomever he, whomever he pleases in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is like a really important idea to them. They're waiting for the kingdom of God, but they have a, they have a wrong conception of what that is about. Theirs is, is, is purely a, 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 theoretic, a theocratic political kingdom. And Jesus is teaching him, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. I've come to teach you spiritual truths of which you are blind to. And he's come to illuminate the darkness that is within Nicodemus's thinking, because Nicodemus doesn't understand what it is that he's talking about. He's completely missing the point of what it is that he knows to be from the Old Testament. He misses the point of reading the Old Testament and understanding it as well. And so Jesus asks him a question in verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus can't understand and perceive them because they're spiritually discerned matters. He's still living in darkness. Spiritual truths are for those who are in the light. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 13 through 16, would basically be saying the same thing as what Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 through 16. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Spiritual truths are discerned to those who are spiritual people. Nicodemus is not that. He can't understand their, their, fully, their, their, their foolishness, their folly to him. He doesn't understand what Jesus is teaching. And Jesus' point is really, in order to be a teacher, you must understand spiritual matters. Enter into the kingdom of God, you must understand spiritual matters. 
Nicodemus thinks that he's a teacher. He's not a teacher at all because he doesn't understand the spiritual truth behind what the scriptures talk about. And Jesus, of course, is on the opposite end of the spectrum. He's the true spiritual teacher because he's the one that discerns things spiritually. He's the one that sees things as they truly are. And he's the one that comes to to explain and to illuminate the truth of what the scriptures say to Nicodemus. And again, I'm reminded of the fact that even of Nicodemus, with all of his knowledge, he doesn't really know anything. And I think of how many professing Christians walk around the same way, thinking that, and I say professing Christians, thinking that they know what the Bible is about and thinking that they know what the scripture, the point of the scripture is and what it is that they're getting into when they open up the book and what it is that they should be looking for. There's all kinds of people that profess to be believers that think they know what the Bible says and they don't have a clue as to what the Bible says because they're spiritually discerned truths for people who are spiritually minded, people who have the mind of Christ. I mean, even for us who are believers who can discern spiritual matters, there are difficult things. I read the Bible sometimes, I read through it, and I go, wow, this is, some, this, this is difficult to understand. And I have to take some time to think and pray and meditate, sometimes for several days just on the same passage to go, what in the world does this mean? And what am I supposed to make of it? And how or can I apply this to my life at all? But Jesus is continuing his conversation with Nicodemus, and he's illuminating the darkness that lies within. And so he says to him in verse 11, truly, truly, and this is the third time he said this, is this to say, again, most certainly, like beyond a shadow of a doubt, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. The you there in verse 11 is plural. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what you, Nicodemus, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but y'all don't receive our testimony. He's speaking broadly to people like Nicodemus, people who are spiritually blind and in the darkness, thinking that they know true things about spiritual realities, and yet they don't have a clue. Now, in verse 11, there's a lot of debate on whether Jesus, when he's talking in the plural of we speak, When he's, ooh, yeah. When he says in verse 11, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, and you do not receive our testimony, there's, there's thoughts on it referring to himself and John the Baptist. Jesus is referring to him and the, um, his disciples. If he's speaking about him and just other spiritually minded people, or him and the Father and the Spirit as well. Um, I think it's important that to be dogmatic on that is on a passage like that, that's super, that's just not super clear, um, is, is not as important to understand what it is that he is trying to communicate and talking to Nicodemus about 
and the truths that he's trying to communicate to him. I would fall on the side of him speaking of, his, of, the, tr- of the triune God. When he says we speak of matters, of these matters, I think he's talking about him, the spirit, and the son due to the context. But he wants, he's communicating to Nicodemus the fact that he doesn't understand what it is that's being communicated. And his darkness is further shown by the fact that he tells him in verse 12 that these are earthly things. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying, I'm talking to you about things that take place in this realm, on earth, on on this location. I'm talking to you about salvation. I'm talking to you about regeneration by the working of the Spirit in your life. That takes place in this life, in the here and the now. It's a spiritual reality, but it takes place among people now, today. And if you don't understand these things that I'm talking to you about, the teacher of Israel, you can't understand heavenly things. You can't understand things that are far beyond your scope, the, 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 the abode and the place where, where God, the triune God, dwells above all things. I'm talking to you about earthly matters, things that you should be able to understand. How are you going to be able to believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he, he reminds him of who he is in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus can teach authoritatively on earthly things and heavenly things because he has been to both, he knows both, and in fact, he has created both. You think about this idea of he has ascended into heaven. No one has ascended except to the the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And he identifies himself specifically as the Son of Man, this, this Daniel 7 picture who's specifically called to receive the kingdom of God and to build the kingdom of God and to hand the kingdom of God over to his people. And so this whole idea of the kingdom of God continues to circulate throughout their conversation. And so it's still a focal point for him. But him being the one, he's the touchstone we've talked about before earlier in John. How Jesus himself, he's the touchstone between heaven and earth. He's the one upon that, as Augustine said, he's the ladder that God sends down from heaven to earth in order for mankind to have fellowship with God, for our broken fellowship to be restored. It's, it's in him, and it's in him alone. And he, so he can speak authoritatively on heavenly things and realities and earthly spiritual things and realities because he's the very God that spoke it all into existence and inhabits both places simultaneously, which is a pretty wild thought to think of. Some translations in verse 13 keep the phrase at the end of verse 13, who is in heaven. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And Calvin thinks that that phrase should be absolutely left in the text as Jesus communicates that he actually inhabits both places simultaneously as part of the triune Godhead. And so Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, He's illuminating the darkness within him regarding spiritual realities. 
And then the ultimate spiritual reality that he is going to illuminate to him is regarding his person and his work and how Jesus illuminates the darkness of death, which is our second point. He's illuminating the darkness of death in verses 13 and 14 and 15. He does it in his person in verse 13 of who he is. No one, as he draws attention specifically to himself, He's been talking to Nicodemus about how he doesn't understand, how he's blind to these things. And then he draws Nicodemus's attention specifically and squarely to himself on his person in verse 13 and upon his work in verse 14. And these two things have been consistently the theme throughout the book of John. Jesus is constantly drawing attention to his person and his work, his divine nature in his redemptive work that he's come to accomplish. This is why he's here, right? 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He's come to save people who are living in darkness, as we read in Isaiah 9. He's come to save people that are living in darkness, people like you and people like me who were once dwelling in the land of darkness, and he came as a bright light and shone upon us, and he broke into it, and he delivered us from the reign of death, as we learned last week in Romans chapter 5. By faith in his person and his work, he illuminates, he shines forth like a, like a, like a bright beaming light of glory, divine glory from heaven to illuminate those whom he has come to save. And he, in order to do that, he draws attention directly to himself as if to say, I'm the only path. There is no other means of redemption or salvation to enter into the kingdom of God except by me. I'm it. I'm the light of the world. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so he gives him a story in verse 14. As the Son of Man or excuse me, as, as, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a story that takes place in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And again, this is a story that Nicodemus would have been well familiar with. And, but he's, he's illuminating to Nicodemus the reality of what the text is about as it points to Christ. Numbers chapter 21 verse 4 begins, From Mount Hor they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people came, became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
These people had spoken out in their sinful rebellion, their ingratitude to God and to Moses. They rebelled against him. In judgment, God sends fiery serpents to bite the people, and they get bitten, and they die. And when they start to realize that there are these serpents around them, biting them and dying them, they go to Moses and they say, we've sinned. Like, intercede for us. And so Moses does. And the Lord says, make this pole and put a fiery serpent. And if anybody just looks at it, all you got to do is look at it. Anyone who's bitten by a serpent will live. Sounds a lot like elements of the fall. Death that came to mankind through the temptation of the serpent and the life that we have in Christ that can be had in Christ as we look to him as a means to escape death. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches Nicodemus as, the Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is why he has come. This is his work. It must take place. But then you see in verse 15 why. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It says the Son of Man is lifted up the way that the serpent was lifted up. Has anybody confessed their sin and looked up to what it was that God's provision of redemption? They had life. They were healed. If anybody had been bitten by the serpent, they looked to God's provision of redemption and they were healed. And Jesus is saying, it's the, it, it's the same way with me as I'm going to be lifted up, as I'm going to be in one, in, in one way physically lifted up and hoisted upon the cross, anybody who's been bitten by the serpent can look to me and find life if they come with repentance and confession of their sin, like the people of Israel did. And if they come and they look to me when I'm lifted up, they will find life and they will live. And he doesn't just describe it as life in verse 15, but it's described as eternal life. This is what it is that we have in Christ. Simply by looking to him. Confession. This is, right? I mean, but why does he precede talking about his work by talking about the work of the Spirit? Because how does anybody truly, with repentance, look up to God's provision of redemption if not but first by the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, enabling them, giving them life, bearing them up again in order to do so? But those whom he is working in that way look to the Son and find life in him. Christ is put up as a public spectacle for all to see so that they might look to him and live. God's wisdom, God's power, his love is put on display and to be looked upon so that no other person, thing, or work might be raised up and offered a up in our place. No other person, no other work, nothing can be raised up as God's provision of redemption other than 
the Son. He alone must be raised up and looked upon with eyes of faith, and that whoever does that believes in him has eternal life. Jesus uses a story Nicodemus must have known well to show him how, actu- how little he actually knew. And to be saved is not to know certain things only. To be saved is to enter, is to know truth, but it's to enter into the kingdom of God by the work of the Spirit, by looking to the exalted Son with confession of sin, and by faith in the Son. And this is the first and more, most important thing that must be spiritually known. Looking to the Son and seeing Him as God's redemptive provision is the most important thing that must be spiritually known. A couple things that I think of as just ways that I was thinking about how to think of this and apply it to my own life. Salvation is not a system, but a divine work. And thus, Scripture and prayer are the best tools that we have. It's not a system. You can't take someone through and teach them stuff so that they know information. Information and knowing the right stuff is certainly a part of the process, a very important part of the process. But that in and of itself doesn't guarantee salvation. How many of you with grown children that raised your kids in the church know the right stuff and yet are not walking with the Lord? Because it's a divine work. It's absolutely a divine work that's necessary. So that's why we stick to the scripture and we commit ourselves to prayer. That God would do that in their lives. We, another thing I was thinking about is that, you know, we just finished this whole Sunday school on evangelism. And I think what's important is that we must remember that as we're evangelizing people, we are communicating divine hidden things we're communicating to them things if there comes moments in the conversation where you're sharing your faith with people and it becomes awkward and weird like they're looking at you like what is the what planet is this person from it's okay you're communicating spiritually discerned divine things that they're blind to they don't get it that's okay Commit to the process. These are the things that God uses to save people. Be committed to, to communicating divine, spiritually discerned truths to people because that's what God uses to open up their eyes to him. That's why Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about these things. If there was another way for salvation, those are the things Jesus would be talking about. And then lastly... Just to know your own spiritual reality and live consistently with it, oriented toward the kingdom of God and eternal things. If you have been born again and your citizenship is in heaven, please put thought and effort and energy into living like it. This world is not your home. You are a pilgrim, you are a sojourner, you are passing through. I, I, I pray that our lives prove that and show that that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and the way that I spend my time and the way that I treat other people 
and the things that are important to me and how I spend my money accurately reflect my citizenship in heaven and not here. This is one of the great things. This is, I'm going to close with this. This is one of the great things about putting Christ at the center and exalting him is that when you do that, you'll find that many of the things that cause division and fracture relationships and that um, really tend to be sources of discouragement, anger, worry, fear, that kind of stuff like that. When you exalt Christ and you look to him, you find all that stuff fades away. It's not important. What? Keep him at the center. He's already exalted. Look to him and find life. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we pray that you would help us to do this tonight. Pray, God, that in our hearts and in our minds, Jesus Christ has been set apart as Lord. And that we are consistently seeking to and intentionally trying to exalt you in our lives. I mean, even when we do that, we're not going to do it perfectly or consistently even at times. But we pray, Lord, that we would be a people that are motivated to every day fight for cultivating, creating a vision in our minds and in our lives regarding the glory of Christ and the reception of that glory and the enjoyment of that glory for all eternity. Lord, help us to do that for your glory and for our own good. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and we will close.